It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? In 2018, a Canadian mining company, RNC Minerals, hit an extremely rich vein of gold in Western Australia. In just over a week, they extracted over 577 pounds of high-grade gold from 130 tons of material dug from deep underground. To understand the magnificence of this strike, one 200-pound gilded quartz rock they dug up is estimated to contain 150 pounds of gold worth almost $3 million. Now that's a lot of gold. It makes one wonder, how much gold is still left in the world to be discovered? The World Gold Council estimates that in the last 5,000 years, humans have mined roughly 190,000 metric tons of gold, roughly 70% of the global supply that would be accessible. 20,000 metric tons came from just the California gold rush. That means about 30% of the world's gold has yet to be discovered. If you plan on finding some, you better get started pretty soon because according to the U.S. Geological Survey, because of modern mining technology, it's so much more efficient, 80% of all the gold ever brought above ground was mined since 1910. And about 50% of all the gold ever mined has been mined since 1967. Did you know the Bible says that if you've got the Word of God, you have something infinitely more valuable than gold. Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. Welcome, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you have a Bible question, this is a live international interactive Bible study. I think last week we had calls from about three different continents and uh, you can listen from anywhere in the world. A lot of people are shut down, and so we've just had a uh, tremendous listening audience lately. Here's the phone number, 800-463-7297, 800-463-7297. We are also streaming on Facebook, and that would be the Doug Batchelor Facebook page or the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And again, the phone number to call in if you're in North America is 800 god says. with your questions about the Bible or living the Christian life. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. Good evening, friends. Pass it as we always do. Let's start with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that uh, once again we have this time. We don't want to take it for granted, but we are grateful for this time to open up your word and study. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be with us here in uh, the studio, Sacramento, be with those listening, Lord, across the country and in different places around the world. Lord, the purpose of this is to come to a clear understanding of your will for our lives and a clear understanding of your word. So we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, Pastor Doug, you know, probably back as uh, young as a, uh, you know, a little kid growing up, they've learned to value gold. It's the treasure hidden by pirates. It's gold is the most valuable um, mineral or material on earth. And of course, <laughs> that's been carried on from uh, generation to generation for hundreds of years. People have been hunting gold, searching for gold. You know, that great find of uh, Tutankhamun, and there was so much gold in that tomb, his whole face. Mask and coffin, yeah. Mask made of gold. It just seemed like it was, uh, it must have taken a lot of mining, especially in those days, to try and find that much gold. Yeah, it's amazing. Of course, you're from South Africa, and I went on a tour of one of the deep mines they've got there. I think the deepest mine in the world is in South Africa. Yeah, people have been pulling that. It's an extremely unusual metal extremely durable and so it's been valuable it's been a stable for years and even in the bible it talks about gold and not any gold it talks about the gold even in genesis the gold of ophir and the fine gold that solomon got from his mines presumably somewhere in north east africa they're not sure where that was and that might be why several bible writers compared gold to the word of god and you can read, for instance, in Psalm 119, King David said one, in verse 127, Therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. You know, people will <laughs> they'll break into houses and rob to get gold. People will go to great lengths to uh, search the deserts to find gold. But what about the gold in God's word? Look at Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And you read down, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. You know, the Word of God changes people's lives. It changes people's hearts. It doesn't matter how much gold you have. If you're not happy, all the gold in the world is not going to change it. If you don't have eternal life, you can't buy that. And that really comes from the Word of God. So there is a greater treasure in the Word of God than anything in the world. Well, you know, Pastor Doug, you're right. Gold is very valuable. But there are two tables of stone that today would probably be more valuable than a lot of gold if it was found. And, of course, those two tables of stone that we're talking about, written by the finger of God, is the Ten Commandments. We believe hidden somewhere in the area close to Jerusalem. In a golden box. In a golden box. <laughs> but the stones are far more valuable than That's the gold right. on the outside of the box. Good point. And we have a lesson that talks about that treasure. And we are going to send that treasure to anyone who wants real gold. I should say something worth more than real gold. For free. Our lesson is called Written in Stone. And yes, it's about the Ten Commandments. This is a great study. It'll start in Genesis, go all the way through the Bible, illustrating the importance of God's law and how we can have the law written in our heart. We'll send it to anyone who calls and asks. The number, if you'd like to receive that, is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. And just ask for the study guide, one of our classic Amazing Facts guides. It's called Written in Stone. We'll send it out to anyone who calls and asks in uh, North America. And of course, we also want to greet our friends who are watching on Facebook. You can see the number on the bottom of the screen, 800-835-6747. That is to our studio if you have a Bible question. So uh, we're going to go to our first caller. We've got uh, Ashton listening in Kentucky. Ashton, welcome to the program. Hey, hey, what's up? Doing good. Thank you for calling. Yeah, yeah. So um, my question was like, um, so like, okay, so like kind of like how do you get like 
back on track with God, I'd say like, because like I was like leading a pretty good life. I mean, you know, before this I wasn't, but after it, I was, you know, praying, I was, you know, reading my Bible and I was doing all that stuff you, you should do, you know, um, I was even sharing my faith, but then I guess somewhere along the lines, I stopped doing one of those things. And I just, I just noticed one day I just woke up. It's like, like crazy. I just looked at my life and I was like, you know, like, how do you get back on track with God? Well, that's a great question, Ashton. And there's probably others out there that are wondering the same thing. We, we had a rich experience with the Lord and then it seems like it drifted. First of all, don't be discouraged because as in life, the Christian life can sometimes feel like you're doing two steps forward and one step back. Jesus said in his letter to the churches, and I think it's the church of Ephesus, the first letter, he said, if you lose your first love, you repent and you return. In other words, go back to the spot where you lost track of God. Get a start there again. Have a renewal of that commitment. It may mean getting on your knees again, confessing your sins, saying, Lord, I want to renew my covenant to accept you as my Savior. Please forgive my sins. Forgive me for becoming distracted. Believe that he forgives you. And then start doing, Jesus said, do the first works again, meaning read the word, schedule that time and say, Lord, tomorrow, all right, you can begin right now. Actually, I'm going to have a new beginning. I'm going to have that regular time with you, the prayer time, the quiet time. I'm going to pray about opportunities to share my faith. And once you know that he's forgiven you and given you a new beginning, it'll put joy in your heart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would encourage you to find a resource that kind of help you in your Bible study. Sometimes it can be a little daunting to take on a Bible and say, well, where do we start? So if you haven't ever done the Amazing Facts Study Guide lessons, it's a great guide to help you dealing with some very important topics. And of course, we'll send this to you, Ashen, for free. You can call our resource phone number and just say, I'd like to enroll in the Amazing Facts Bible School. And we'll do so. The number is 800-835-6747. And again, ask for the Amazing Facts Study Guide series. Next caller that we have is uh, Daryl listening from Arizona. Daryl, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. Thanks for calling, Daryl. Thank you for taking my call. I uh, just have a question regarding biblical marriage and what what is biblical marriage, I guess. Well, are you wondering, biblical marriage, does it need to be a state-sanctioned marriage? Or are you wondering, you know, is it wrong to marry out of faith? Yes, exactly. All right. So I, you're asking about technically what would be a legally, biblically sanctioned marriage. You know, in the beginning, of course, it says God creates Eve from the rib of Adam and he presents her, brings her to the man. The first wedding service, you might say, is conducted by God. Then marriages sometimes were contracted and you've got where, you know, Abraham uh, sends a servant and he contracts a marriage of Rebecca with Isaac, and it says Isaac took Rebecca and she became his wife. They maybe didn't have some of the ceremonies that they had. By the time you get to Jacob, they're, you know, they're having a seven-day marriage feast. Now, the important components in a marriage to make it legal was there was a covenant because it's a lifelong commitment. It's a covenant that was legally recognized, meaning in your society, you don't want people going after your husband or your wife. So there was a public announcement. It was public vows, and people basically knew these people are committed to each other, hands off. They're not on the market anymore. It was important that it was public also so that they were the ones responsible for their children. 
for a marriage to be legal, you know, I think it should be recognized by the laws of the land. Met a lot of people to say, well, we're married in God's eyes and that's all that matters. And I always come back wondering, well, what prevents you from making it legal? Is that answering your question, Daryl? Yes. And you actually said the exact same thing that I said. This is regarding my son. And so I, I said the same thing. And so I, it sounds, sounds like we're on the same page. Yeah. I remember counseling with a couple and they were living together and said, oh yeah, we're Christians. We're married in God's eyes. I said, well, has it been legal? And they said, no, but it's in God's eyes. I said, now, <laughs> if you guys decide to have children and you separate, will you need a divorce? And they said, well, no, we won't need, we won't need a legal divorce because it wasn't a legal marriage. <laughs> I thought, well, then you're not married. People, they spin all kinds of arguments, but there's no good reason for people not to be legally married. You know, we do have a study guide called Keys for a Happy Marriage. Yes. And I was just kind of looking through it here online. Great resource. It's got some great pointers to help any marriage to become stronger or better. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who might call and ask. Uh, the number again is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. It's called Keys for a Happy Marriage. Uh, we've got, let's see, Dennis listening in California. Dennis, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks for calling. Yeah, I was reading in Genesis 17, uh, starting, well, maybe at 17 or verse 18 through about 21, and God and Abraham are talking about Ishmael and Isaac, and uh, it seems that Abraham asked a blessing from God on Ishmael, and God gave it. Yes, unconditionally and he said for Isaac you know this time next year you'll have uh, Sarah will bear Isaac and he will be the child of the covenant and I'm thinking a covenant's like a contract which is kind of a you do this correctly and then I'll do that correctly you be good and I'll bless you a covenant or a contract is kind of an if thing you know, and I guess we can get corrected over and over and over and over and over again, but it seems like God blessed the Muslims unconditionally. Well, now, let's talk about that for a moment. When God said that he was going to bless Ishmael, he did. And he blessed him with many children. You know, the blessing of Abraham, and he had no children, and God said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you with many seed, not only through Isaac, but through Ishmael, because he would have 12 sons, and that's in the same verse here. Ishmael had 12 princes. It's interesting. Jacob had 12 sons, too. But the Muslim religion, the religion of Muhammad and Islam, was not part of this blessing. There, there's no covenant with a new religion, because the majority of the Muslims in the world, they're not, they're not Arabs. They're not related to Ishmael. They're actually in Indo Indonesia right now. So God was not blessing a religion that would be in conflict with the religion of Christ. So the blessing of the covenant that he was giving through Isaac was that the Messiah, the savior of the world, was going to come through the line of Isaac, from Isaac on through Jacob, through Judah, through David, ultimately through Christ. No such blessing was given through any other nation. So God did bless Ishmael. He gave him a long life. He gave him many offspring and he prospered him it wasn't a blessing that the truth was going to come through him. You still there, Daryl? I'm sorry, Dennis. Yeah, yeah, I I am. I I know I had asked uh, a Muslim nurse that uh, was attending me at one point, and she says, yeah, we go back to Abraham. And uh, 
just this verse just caused me to wonder if maybe they seem to be closer in a way, you know, praying five times a day. We we might do we might do better if we did. There are some commendable things. Yeah, there are commendable things in many religions. Uh, you know, and you, you've got Pastor Ross and I have been to India and Africa, and we, we've seen a lot of very devout Hindus that pray a lot, make great sacrifice and go on long pilgrimages, and they're very sincere. And so I don't question the sincerity of any other religion. I would question that the truth of it. I mean, do they have a Messiah that saves us from the sins of the world? that takes on himself the sins of the world. There's nothing in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism that offers that. But yeah, God did bless the offspring of Ishmael. You know, you do have a, a series of sermons, Pastor Doug. On Christianity, Islam, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I forget the exact title of it, but I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Prophecy, Christianity, Islam, and Prophecy. That's right, it's a good resource. Amazing Facts offers some of the best Christian resources for all ages. We hope our products will enrich your life and your walk with the Lord. What does Bible prophecy reveal about the world's two largest religions? Explore the ancient conflict in Islam, Christianity, and Prophecy, a compelling three-part series with Pastor Doug Batchelor. Get yours today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Did you know Amazing Facts has a free Bible school that you can do from the comfort of your own home? It includes 27 beautifully illustrated study lessons to aid in your study of God's Word. Sign up today for this free Bible study course by calling 1-844-215-7000. That's 1-844-215-7000. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Next caller that we have is uh, Barry listening in New York. Barry, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, My question is this. The Bible says that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ shall rise, and believers that are left on earth will be uh, caught up with them in the clouds. My question is, who's going to be around to participate in the thousand years of paradise earth, the the, uh, millennium? So you're asking a great question. You're wondering who is still on earth during the 1,000 years, right? Right, right, exactly. Maybe Pastor Ross will find uh, Jeremiah 4.23 for me. And we'll read something to you. There's a major misconception that uh, a lot of evangelicals make about the millennium. They assume that the righteous are living on earth during the millennium, when in reality, the Bible says when Jesus comes back, and I can tell you're, you're thinking on the same lines, when Jesus comes back, we are caught up. Christ says, I go to prepare a place. I will receive you unto myself that where I am, these mansions that have been prepared there, you might be also. So we go up. And the millennium begins when Christ comes. So who's down here on earth if the wicked are destroyed by, by Christ's coming? Well, here's the verse, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. This is a prophetic passage, and it says, I beheld the earth, and lo, indeed, it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. Now, someone might think, oh, he's talking about creation, but you've got to read on. I beheld the mountains, and indeed, they trembled, and the hills, they moved back and forth. I beheld, indeed, there was no man, and all the birds of heaven had fled away. I beheld, indeed, the fruitful land was a wilderness. All the cities were broken down by the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. 
for thus saith the Lord. So here we have a description of what happens when Jesus comes. Uh, the earth is left in a broken down or desolate condition. All the righteous are in heaven. Uh, the wicked are destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. And the devil and his angels are sort of bound to this earth. Revelation chapter 20 talks about this bottomless pit. The word there, Pastor Doug, is just uh, abusos, meaning without form and void, kind of broken down. Now, at the end of the millennium, though, uh, the wicked are resurrected for the final judgment. We call it the great white throne judgment. You read about in Revelation 20, also in Revelation 21. Yeah, and you can. there's another scripture, and it says in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 3, the land will be utterly emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, Jeremiah says that the slain of the Lord cover the earth in that day from one end to the other, and there's no one to lament or mourn or bury them. So several prophecies describe a condition of the world where it's vacated. So during the 1,000 years, we're in heaven, and the saved are living and reigning with Christ. The rest of the dead, the wicked, they're not living till the 1,000 years are finished. There's nobody alive on earth. Does that make sense, Barry? Uh, sort of, yes. I, I, so the, the uh, millennium isn't going to take place on earth. It is, it's not going to become a paradise and be restored. No, we'll be in paradise with God. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, the new Jerusalem, you read in John and Revelation 21, comes down to earth and God then creates a new heaven and a new earth. And we have a lesson, a free lesson that covers this that I think will really help you. Yes, I'd encourage you to get it. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace, and it's all about the millennium. Revelation chapter 20 and some other very important passages. We'll send this to you, Barry, for free. The number to call is 800-835-6747. 800-835-6747. Ask for the study guide. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. You can also go to the Amazing Facts website. It's amazingfacts.org, and you'll be able to read right there about the 1,000-year uh, period as well. Thank you for your call. Our next caller that we have, Altonette, listening in uh, Louisiana. Altonette, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Pastor Sean and Pastor Doug. Yeah, how can we help your question? Well, I, I wanted you to see if y'all can uh, give me a little more clarity on this scripture here. Uh, it's coming out of Matthew 18th chapter, the 18th verse. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, things that happen here on earth in sharing the gospel, in not sharing the gospel, in decisions that are made, have eternal consequences in heaven. And Jesus is saying that, you know, the, the work that we do here is going to have an everlasting result. Whether we share the forgiveness of Christ or we forbear doing that, that's going to have eternal consequences. And of course, if you read the context just a few verses above, it's talking about a situation that would arise in the church where you might have somebody who is claiming to be a Christian, but they're not living according to the principles of the Bible. Uh, maybe they are causing uh, conflict in the church, and there are certain ways in which you need to deal with it. One of which is you need to go to them, you need to pray with them, you need to encourage them, you need to bring someone with you. But finally, if they still refuse, you bring it to the church, and the church appeals to them, asks them to come to a point of unity and reconciliation. If they still flatly refuse, then it is appropriate to, uh, at times, separate them from fellowship uh, with the church. Now, it doesn't mean that they can never return or never be saved. But we need to recognize that it's part of the redemptive process where there are times where we might have to correct people 
at least try to work with them as much as possible to bring them to an understanding of truth. Then Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So he's emphasizing the authority and the work of the church when it's trying to uh, win somebody back. Well, thank you so much for that. All right. Thank you, Alton. I appreciate it. We've got Kate listening in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Kate, welcome to the program. Hi. Good evening, pastors. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question regarding Revelation 20, and it says, Whosoever was found was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So um, I understand uh, there will be uh, two groups of saved people, one before thousand years of peace and another after thousand years of peace. So my question is, does it mean those who saved before thousand years are only Christians, and after thousands of years, after final judgment, those are um, kind of mix of Christians and non-Christians. Am I correct? Thank you so much. Thank you for your question, Kate. You know, I th- I think there may be a little misunderstanding here. There, There's only one group of saved and lost. The saved and lost are separated at the second coming. After the second coming, there's not another group that God saves later. All of the saved that are alive are transformed and given new bodies when Jesus comes. All of the saved who are dead are resurrected with their glorified bodies when Jesus comes. We go back to heaven and we live and reign with him in that celestial paradise, the new Jerusalem in heaven, for a thousand years. At the end of the 1,000 years, the wicked are then resurrected. And I forget what verse, Revelation 20 is at verse 5. It says the rest of the dead don't live until the thousand years are finished, meaning the rest of the dead do live after that. And if all the saved go up when Jesus comes, the rest of the dead must be all the lost. So they are raised for a judgment. And it says that they go up on the breadth of the world led by Satan. It calls them Gog and Magog, but that's an Old Testament Old Testament names for enemies of God's people. The nations of Gog and Magog were enemies of God's people. And they gather together to battle against God. And fire comes down from God out of heaven after this white throne judgment. And they are devoured and cast into the lake of fire, second death. They're, the saved, all the saved that are saved, that happens at the second coming. You still there, Kate? Yes. Uh, Pastor, um, I'm sorry for additional question. Does it mean only Christians are saved? Uh, like um, if there will be other people who are from other nations, other tongues, who did not know Christian, Christian religion? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I've just got a few seconds, so let me see if I can answer this quickly. And this is, we're just going to take a break here in a minute. There will be some people, no doubt, that will be saved who maybe did not know the gospel. Of course, before Jesus came, there's all these people in the Old Testament times. And Jesus said, many will come from the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those people are saved at the same time when Christ comes. They're under the blood of the Lamb. Everyone is saved by Christ. But some maybe did not know everything, but they lived up to what they know. We've got more we're going to learn about this and other subjects, friends. We're just taking a break. Going to catch our breath, get a drink. You can call your friends, tell them, tune in. We'll be right back with more questions. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. 
The U.S. government is drowning in debt to the tune of $22 trillion. But before you wag your finger at the government spending, the Federal Reserve says the average American household carries over $137,000 in debt. While it was never God's plan that we live with a burden of debt, Proverbs 22.7 warns us, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Living with debt is a stressful burden that actually hurts your relationship with God. In my new pocketbook, Deliverance from Debt, I outline the Bible principles on how to properly manage your money with some practical suggestions on how you can get out and stay out of debt. If you or someone you love is drowning in debt, order a copy of Deliverance from Debt today. It can be a lifesaver to keep you from going under. Please call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. An international pandemic killing thousands, riots ripping communities apart, a global economic implosion. Many are wondering, is this the end of the world? Few question the military, economic, and technological might of the United States. So if we really are facing the last days, if these worldwide catastrophes are really harbingers of the end, shouldn't we expect the United States to play a key role in the final events of Bible prophecy? The book of Revelation provides unmistakable clues. And to help you understand them, Amazing Facts is releasing America in Bible Prophecy. It's going to take you step by step in identifying the global forces at work in these last days. You might be surprised what the Bible really says. You owe it to yourself to find out. So get yourself a copy of America in Bible Prophecy. Visit afbookstore.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends. This is Pastor Doug Batchelor, and this is Bible Answers Live. And if you want to call in with your questions, the number for the studio in North America, 800 800- Four six three seven two nine seven. That's eight hundred. God says. Also, we are streaming on the Doug Bachelor Facebook page and the Amazing Facts Facebook page, and that's got a little video stream. If you want to see what we look like in our studio, I don't know why in the world anyone would, but some people seem to enjoy it. So you can uh, take a look and see what radio looks like. That sounds like a contradiction. My name is Doug Bachelor. My name is John Ross, and we're going to go to our second part of our program, beginning with. Jerry, who's listening in Texas. Jerry, welcome to the program. Oh, good evening. Evening. Thanks for taking my call, guys. Yeah, well, thank you for calling. Your question tonight. Uh, yes, Doug. It's just a quick thing that uh, I don't think that there's... I probably already know an answer, answer to my question, but is there any archaeological evidence to say that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took a seven-year vacation? 
You know, that's a good question, Jerry. I will not pretend that I am acquainted with all the historical information on the Babylonian kings. I don't remember ever reading anything from history. I think that it's very likely the, the fact that he was able to retain power indicates that probably the court, the palace personnel to protect, because if, if one king lost power, then someone else filled the vacuum and they would probably all be fired or executed. And they probably did a pretty good job of trying to hide that he had been incapacitated. Right now, at the time of this recording, seems like there's a lot of secrecy about what's happened to the leader of North Korea. Nobody wants to know about his medical condition. And America came into power when King George III seemed to go bonkers. And they tried to hide that for several years. So it probably wouldn't be much in history because he did end up getting his wits and his power back. He probably didn't want the historical records outside of what he wrote in the Bible to say, yeah, I was out of my mind like a raving lunatic for seven years. It doesn't build confidence when a king says that. And also, you know, I read somewhere about back in, in the time of Babylon, there was a certain amount of superstition that if you treated uh, a mad person badly, you could receive their madness. So it's quite possible that they, you know, kind of separating him from, uh, you know, the regular crowd in the royal palace, but they kind of took care for it, took care of him as much as they could. The other thing is, uh, of course, Daniel was very prominent in Babylon at the time. He knew about the dream. He already interpreted to the king. He knew that this was going to be a seven-year period. Some wonder maybe Daniel played a role in kind of keeping the throne. That's a good point. He was prime minister. He probably uh, helped him preserve power. Yeah. Great question, Jerry. Thanks for calling. Our next caller is also from Texas. Uh, we have Lenona calling. Uh, Leo, I think it's Leona. Yeah, welcome. Um, I had a question. Um, I was reading Hebrews, and I wanted to know uh, what the order of Melchizedek, um, how, how it pertains to me or, or us, or what is it telling me? Well, I'll say a little bit. Pastor Ross loves Hebrews, and I'll, I'll let him add to that. Melchizedek is a character who appears in Genesis. He is called the king priest of Salem. Now, this same territory is later known as Jerusalem. Abraham gives him tithe from a battle he had won against the, the Syrians to the north, a king named Chedorlaomer. Then in Hebrews, Paul is making an analogy in saying that Melchizedek is the leader of even, even greater priesthood than Aaron because Abraham, the father of the Levites and Aaron, he paid tithe to Melchizedek. And he says, Jesus is a symbol of Melchizedek, that he's a greater priesthood and that everything about Christianity is better is what it's saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Paul, we believe Paul wrote Hebrews, he's making the case that Jesus is a greater priest than the Levitical priesthood because the Jews would say, well, Jesus from the tribe of Judah, he couldn't be a priest. He, you know, a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. And so then Paul is illustrating a different priesthood other than that of the Levitical priesthood, which is even greater than that. And he describes it as the Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek is both, both a priest and a king. So that was somewhat unique. Christ through the kingly line is from Judah, but uh, the priestly line is even greater than that of the Levitical priesthood and Paul makes this analogy with um, Melchizedek. Interesting character. We don't have a lot written about him in the Old Testament, but he does pop up a few times in the New Testament. That's right. And I think even Psalms mentions Melchizedek. Thank you very much. Hope that helps. You know, we need to write a little book about who was Melchizedek. 
We, we get a lot of good questions on that. That would be very helpful. Uh-huh. Absolutely. We've got Mike listening in St. Louis. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you guys doing? We're always better than we deserve. Well, that's good. How are you doing? I can't complain. Um, my question actually comes from watching your show. That's how I came up with it. But here it is. Um, let me throw my glasses on real quick. I wrote it down so I, I wouldn't stumble on it. All right. Here it is. Um, does Revelation chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, and James chapter 1, verse 1, show that only two tribes became lost before the time of Christ and were replaced by making Manasseh a half-tribe, a full tribe, replacing the half-tribe of Ephraim, and Joseph a new tribe, replacing Dan? Okay, that's a good question, Mike. You're a deep thinker. You're looking at the 12 tribes that are mentioned that compose the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. It is a unique list. Uh, The tribes were the sons of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So when you say the tribes of Jacob or the tribes of Israel, it's the same character. He had 12 sons, but because Joseph was sold by his brothers, When Jacob was reunited with Joseph, he said, look, Joseph, I'm going to treat your two sons, their names were Ephraim and Manasseh, like my sons. They're going to get an equal share because you were alienated from the family for over 30 years. So they end up becoming numbered. But over history, the tribes in the north, there was a civil war between the 10 tribes in the north and with the priests, which were the Levites, and the two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. Ten of those tribes were carried off captive by the Assyrians. They never had a a big return. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, when they were carried to Babylon, they did come back. Ten of those tribes largely evaporated. So when you're talking about the 12 tribes in Revelation, it must be using symbolic names. Every name in Revelation practically is symbolic. Um, I think once or twice it talks about Jesus and then John talks about John. Those are literal, but every other name in Revelation, it talks about, you know, the dragon and Michael and Apollyon and Balaam and Jezebel and all those names are symbolic. We believe the 12 tribes that are mentioned here really are highlighting the plan of salvation, you know, who God is going to save from both Israel and the church. Now, I've got a book I wrote on that. And we'll send you a free copy that gives a lot more detail if you'd like that, Mike. It's called, Who Are the 144,000? And the number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And again, ask for the book called, Who Are the 144,000? That's 800-835-6747. And it's free. And just to add to that a little bit, during the time of Jesus, you're asking any of the tribes came back. During the time of Jesus, we find that uh, the Jews were referred to as Jews, Jews were primarily from the descendants of Judah. And of course, we know Saul, who later became Paul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a much smaller tribe. And the Levites, they didn't receive an inheritance. So they were scattered amongst all of the 12 tribes, but they were consecrated more so closer to Jerusalem. And uh, of course, that served as the capital of the two tribes in the south. So there's a little background on that. Thanks for your call, Mike. We've got uh, Henry listening uh, from Bronx, New York. Henry, welcome to the program. Yes, how are you? Doing wonderful. Blessed days to you. The question that I asked, two of your people from the program didn't understand what I was talking about. Uh, listen, I want to know, it's stated in the Bible that no sin, no sin will go unpunished. 
uh, why didn't God make it so where people who who didn't who do sin all their lives while they're alive? Why doesn't he he doesn't do anything to them until the judgment day comes? Then that's when they're really going to feel it. All right, good question. I appreciate that, Henry. All sin, there's consequences for all sin. Now, if God punished all sin instantly, the penalty for sin is death. That would mean the first time a person sinned, shortly after their age of accountability, they would vaporize, they die, or whatever judgment God would pick. Nobody would ever even live long enough to have mercy, to have probation, to understand the plan of salvation. So God is merciful, and he's very patient, and he bears long even with the wicked. There are consequences for our sins even during our lives. But instead of God giving everybody the death penalty when we sin, he chastens us in different ways to try to get our attention. That might mean some physical suffering. It might mean a financial reverse. It might mean problems in the family. It depends on what the sin is. It might mean time in jail. You know, there, God does punish sin. Now, sometimes it looks like people are getting away with murder and some in the world are guilty of murder for a long time. All those things are going to be justified in the judgment. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Nobody gets away with anything. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. But the Lord is merciful in this life, trying to get people to come to repentance before their lives are over. Because once you die, it says after that, the judgment, there's no more second chance after death. And you know, Pastor Doug, in a very real sense, we do reap to a certain degree what we sow here on this earth. If somebody is unhealthy, they eat bad, they don't take care of their body, maybe they take a whole lot of um, different types of drugs or chemicals, their life is going to be shorter than someone probably who eats well and takes care of their life. And they probably wanted the peace or the joy. Uh, somebody who has broken down relationships and caused a division, there's not much peace or joy in that. So yes, in a very real sense, people do reap what they sow even now, but ultimately you have the judgment. Yeah, and we have a lesson I'd like to send you that gives more detail on that, Henry. It's free. It's called Case Closed. It's on the great judgment day of God. And you know, there's a verse I think of in Ecclesiastes, and I forget where it is, but it, it basically says, though sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Because God is merciful and he doesn't zap us with lightning every time we sin, people sometimes presume on God's grace. I think we've all been guilty of that at times, but there is a judgment day for all. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Please, anyone who wants to understand what the Bible says about the judgment, most people aren't lining up for this lesson, but they need to. <laughs> they need to. It's called Case Closed. The number to call, 800-835-6747. And again, the lesson is called Case Closed. And it talks about what does the Bible say about judgment? Now, for the believer, it's not a fearful thing, uh, but it is a sobering thought. And uh, we'd encourage people to take a look at that. We've got Julie listening in California. Julie, welcome to the program. Hi. Hello. <laughs> So I have a question about First um, Thessalonians chapter four, um, verses basically thirteen through seventeen. I'm a little confused about where it says, um, "For this we declare to you that." Um, you want me to read that verse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So I'll start with verse thirteen. But I and this is First Thessalonians four and verse thirteen. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Paul's talking about death. Lest you sorrow as others that have no hope. Christians don't have to worry because there's a resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that the Lord, Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed. That means we won't go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, he said, so first they rise, they rise, they get their glorified bodies, they are uh, resurrected. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Anything specific about that that I read? Yes. Okay, so I'm confused about this part where it says, Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I, I, I was always under the impression through my studies that that we won't rise to heaven until the second coming that every most people anyway well let me let me give you a picture i think i know what you're asking let me paint this with words so when the lord comes back his feet don't touch the ground first thing he does as he's sweeping around the circle of the earth he resurrects the dead in christ they are caught up with their glorified bodies they are then with the lord then after they're gathered, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. It's not that they've been raised thousands of years earlier. They're being raised at the second coming, but they're raised first before we are transformed or caught up to meet them. You know, another thing on this verse, which could be a little confusing, it says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We're kind of thinking in this verse, from our perspective, that somehow Jesus is going to bring with him those who sleep, or God will bring with Jesus those who sleep. But really, the verse is from God's perspective in heaven. So Jesus comes, he gathers up the redeemed, and he's going to bring them with him back to God, back to heaven, back to the home of the redeemed. So it's not from our perspective, but here Paul is describing from God's perspective. He's going to send Jesus, Jesus is going to gather them up and bring them back to him. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. That makes sense now, I guess. Um, But why does it say that um, it says, make no mistake, we... uh, We will not precede them. Precede them, yeah. Why would it say that instead of saying um, they will not precede us? Paul is trying to comfort. He said, you're not going to get to heaven and find that your loved ones aren't there. He said, don't worry. We're all going together. See, this is the key word. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, not in heaven. We're all going to get together at the second coming to meet the Lord in the air together with them. And thus shall we, them in us and the Lord, always be together. So we're to comfort each other that we're not going to be eternally separated. He's giving them simply the sequence of the resurrection. Can we send you uh, a lesson on this, Julie? We've got a, a lesson that covers this whole, um, whole passage. The, uh, the lesson is called uh, Ultimate Deliverance, and we'll send this to anyone who asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And again, you can ask for that study guide. It's called Ultimate Deliverance, and we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls. We've got a caller, Joseph, listening from Ad- Abu Dhabi. Joseph, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, good evening. Hi, thank you for calling. I've been to Abu Dhabi couple of times. Yes, uh, we met uh, 2018 in Dubai uh, when I gave testimony. Oh, wonderful. And your question? Uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 12, it says about the ten horns, which are ten kings. 
And I have recently come across uh, an interpretation. It says they have not yet received the kingdom, which means it cannot be the ten divisions of ancient Roman Empire because it says they have not received the kingdom yet. So it's something that's yet to come in the future uh, from our perspective. So how, how do we interpret Yeah. Well, I'll share real quick. I think Pastor Ross might have something to say on this, but when you're reading John, when you're reading Revelation from John's perspective, this is in the future. At the time when the woman, in you have a woman in Revelation 17, and she's riding a beast with these 10 horns, they were not in power with individual kingdoms at that time. That didn't happen until later on. So again, it's just from whose perspective. The angel is explaining these symbols to John, and uh, the kingdoms that, or the ten horns, the ten kings that don't have a kingdom, there's other places in the Bible that identify them as being the divisions of Western Europe. However, it does say in verse 12, uh, they receive authority one hour as kings with the beast. Now, of course, we understand that for a period of about 1260 years during the Dark Ages, uh, the beast power was sort of influencing these kingdoms. This one hour is yet in the future where we have church and state uniting and passing certain laws restricting worship. So that is still a, a future future fulfillment there. We do have a study guide called The Other Woman, which is all about Revelation chapter 17. That's true. And if you haven't read that, Joseph, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, the number to call for those in North America, of course, you can read it online. The number for those here in North America is 800-835-6747. Ask for the study guide called The Other Woman. We've got David listening from Guam. We went from the east now all the way over to the west. David, welcome to the program. How are you doing, uh, Pastor? Good. Thank you for calling. we got a couple minutes left, so we better get our question pretty quick. Oh, okay. Uh, i got a question here that uh, I'm, I'm just kind of curious because um, uh, when when God made um, a man, um, you know, Eve was the first one, and then uh, he brought out uh, Adam. But then for the rest of the time, when did all these different colors of uh, skin start to come about? Do you know? You know, Anthropologists sometimes divide the races in the world into three primary races, but actually there are hundreds of different combinations of races around the planet. And when you get to the Tower of Babel, of course, all the people from Noah, they, they're the only people that populated or repopulated the earth. They ended up making this great tower there in the plains of Shinar. And God you know, confounded their work, and they were scattered and dispersed everywhere. And so all of the different nations and races fanned out from Mesopotamia. And it's interesting that the, the DNA mapping that they do of the world and the migration of man, they've got two theories. They say that all of the, um, all of the peoples of the world can be traced back to uh, Northeast Africa or, or in Mesopotamia. Now, of course, the Bible says it's Mesopotamia that from there all the different races fanned out. As different people groups centered in different parts of the world, and they were separated by continents and oceans, they would intermarry with their basically their same people, and so certain genetic traits became more predominant. And that's where you get the different races. Yeah, I think it's important to note that, you know, all irrespective of the color of your skin or your race, you're all of the same number of DNA there are certain abilities within DNA where certain genes are 
in recess and other genes are more active, determining the color of your skin, your eyes, your hair. There's a number of reasons. But all of us have the genetic information. God has given each person through Adam and Eve this flexibility as families move, different environmental situations change, certain genes become prominent. But it doesn't matter who you are, you've got the genetic material that traces all the way back to Adam. Thus, the Bible says God has created all nations from one blood. That's right. Yeah, all related. You know, we have time for maybe half a question if you can pick someone. All right. Well, let's try. Well, let's see. I saw some. Yeah, there we go. Maria is listening in Hawaii. Maria, welcome to the program. Hi. Um, my question is, we are advised to have a will. So should we be putting our money on retirement, like 401k or Roth IRA, knowing that Jesus is going to be coming soon, but we don't know when? All right. Good question. You know, what do you, what do you do if you're a Christian? You know, Jesus is coming. Is it wrong to have some money in savings, whether it's a, you know, a retirement account or a 401k, you know, it's a balance. And then now there may be a time before the Lord comes where he's going to impress people. Hey, we're near the end. A good time to invest everything in God's kingdom or give heavily. But, you know, John Wesley said every Christian ought to save all he can, earn all he can, there's nothing wrong with making good investments. Jesus, in the parable of the talents, encourages people to work with their, their talents and their gifts to multiply them, and then give all you can. Save all you can, earn all you can, give all you can. I don't recommend, I've known a few people in history, they're Christians, they get excited about conditions in the world, they sell all their assets, thinking the world's about to end and they, you know, all of us want to make sure we have nothing left when Jesus comes, that we've invested everything in the kingdom. But then all of a sudden the world continues going on, things settle down and now they have no retirement. They become a burden to their families and they think, well, maybe I was getting a little excited liquidating everything. You need to pray. You know, I've got to be careful not to tell people how to make financial investments. Continue to pay faithfully tithes, offerings, when mission opportunities present themselves. But I would not tell a Christian to make no plans for the future, because I think there are scriptures that say it's probably a prudent thing to, to be saving some for the future and for retirement. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say there's probably a number of individuals in the last hundred years that went through different experiences where they thought, this is the end. <laughs> of course, here we are today. So it's not a denial of faith to make wise financial decisions. I mean, ultimately, when Jesus comes, all of this is not going to be worth anything. I think if we're seeking God's will, he will guide us as to when it is. Like you mentioned, we might want to sell everything and invest in the Lord's work. Yeah, when God poured out the Spirit during Pentecost, it says they then knew they were liquidating and putting everything into the kingdom. I think God's going to pour out his spirit again before he comes, and we're, we're also going to know. Hey, friends, thank you so much. It's been a delight studying the Word of God with you. We've got a few very important announcements we'd like to hear in closing. Most of all, keep in mind, Jesus is coming soon, and we want to live by every word. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. The U.S. government is drowning in debt to the tune of $22 trillion. But before you wag your finger at the government spending, the Federal Reserve says the average American household carries over $137,000 in debt. 
Well, it was never God's plan that we live with a burden of debt. Proverbs 22.7 warns us, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Living with debt is a stressful burden that actually hurts your relationship with God. In my new pocketbook, Deliverance from Debt, I outline the Bible principles on how to properly manage your money with some practical suggestions and how you can get out and stay out of debt. If you or someone you love is drowning in debt, order a copy of Deliverance from Debt today. It can be a lifesaver to keep you from going under. Please call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. The Bible tells us that salvation, of course, emanates from God. So we need to know something about God to rightly understand and embrace salvation. Yet in the church today, there's a great deal of confusion about the nature of God. The Bible says God is one God, but is he three persons? Is Jesus also eternal God? Because Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean there was a time when he did not exist or he was brought into existence? Is the Holy Spirit a person? Or is he just the force and the energy that God uses to communicate? You know, I thought this was so important, I really felt led of the Lord to write a book on the subject called Exploring the Trinity, One God or Three. In this book, we answer those very important questions. We talk about the history of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, as well as the history of the Holy Spirit in the church and how it has been much debated. This is something we really need to understand because Jesus said eternal life comes from knowing God. For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com. Can't get enough Amazing Facts Bible Study? You don't have to wait until next week to enjoy more truth-filled programming. Visit the Amazing Facts Media Library at aftv.org. At aftv.org, you can enjoy video and audio presentations as well as printed material all free of charge. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, right from your computer or mobile device. Visit aftv.org. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.